I invite you to turn to the scripture text for this morning's sermon. It's found in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And now, Father, for the third time, we focus our attention on this glorious text from your word. And we are in need of your help. It's a challenging word, intellectually. It's challenging philosophically for modern individualists. And it's challenging spiritually for all of us who are rebellious by nature against you. And so there's no hope for anything significant happening here without you. And I ask for you to come as you have already come in this room in the worship of song and in the worship of communion, I ask now for your presence in the worship of preaching. We love the gospel. This is the gospel. Make it plain, please. And save and strengthen and heal and embolden and guide. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Last week we ended at the end of verse 14, and I direct your attention there to review the last point we made. You see the phrase there at the end of verse 14 in Romans 5, who was a type of him who is to come, or who was to come. Adam, a type of of him, Christ, who was to come. My question at the end of the service, or near the end, was, why did he put that phrase right there? Absolutely crucial to see why he put the phrase, who is a type of him to come here, right here. Why? Now, the answer to that is seen in the previous words, Read them with me in your head. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
Here come the key words. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. The judgment on Adam's sin killed people who hadn't sinned like Adam. That's, that's what that says. Who is a type of Jesus. Now why here? Why right there? People are dying for Adam's sin. And he's a type of Jesus. Why? And the answer we gave was that right there is the absolutely essential point that he wants to make about justification. And the parallel between Christ and Adam. In Adam, we die without having necessarily done deeds that cause the death. In Christ, we live, and it isn't the deeds that we did that created the life in us. There's something about the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works that is absolutely essential. And Paul wants to make it clear by developing this parallel between Adam and Christ. And the first place that he mentions the parallel is right when he says people are dying though they didn't do the sins of the one whose penalty they are receiving. Analogy, people are living who didn't do the righteous acts which Christ performed for them. That's the point of the paragraph. That's the point of the whole chapter. It's the point of of justification by faith. And the only reason for bringing in this weighty, massive issue of our union with Adam and our bearing his penalty is to make crystal clear that Jesus comes into the world to rectify that by performing an analogous justification. We get Adam's condemnation, we get Christ's justification. We participate in his disobedience, we participate in his obedience. His obedience, his righteousness, his sacrifice are our righteousness and our death. And that's what he wants us to see. That's why it's inserted right here. That's where we ended last week. Now, What do verses 15 to 17 contribute to this glorification of Jesus as the one and only solution to the problem of the human race, which we have because of Adam? How can we see Jesus magnified and lifted up in verses 15 to 17, which is where we want to focus today? Notice the first word in verse 15. In all your versions, I presume, it is the word, but. So now let's make sure we see why it's but. Adam is a type or a pattern or a foreshadowing or a prefiguration of Christ. But, 
And then for three verses, he says why you shouldn't draw false conclusions from that. He's not like him this way. He's not like him this way. He's not like him this way. But he's like him. So he gets out of the way for three verses, 15, 16, and 17, how he's not like him. And then in verses 18 and 19, which we will not get to this morning, he bores in on the like him. You can see that right off the bat, both in verse 15 and 16. Notice the phrase, not like. But the free gift is not like the transgression, even though I just said he was a type. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Even though I said he was a type, it's not like, not like. So that's the point of these three verses. To hold up a superiority of Jesus over Adam. A not like. Let me clarify here something. Because you might think, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that righteousness is not like sin. Is that a big revelation? That the Savior of the world is not like the first parent. But that's not quite the point. If you have in your head that Adam's sin and condemnation is minus 10, and Christ's righteousness and justification is plus 10, you miss the point entirely. Because the equality there is zero. Christ did not come into the world to produce zero. There's something in these verses when we're talking about the not like. He's not like, which doesn't simply mean righteousness is not like sin. Everybody knows that. That's not the point. The point is, plus ten righteousness and minus ten sin are not what the text is about. The text is about... Minus 10 sin and infinite on the positive side of the ledger. We'll see it in every verse. We're going to see it in every verse that this Christ who is the type of Adam way outstrips the simple number quotient that would even everything out in the world. That's not what it's about. You'll see it. So let's go to verse 15. And take one verse at a time. What I want to do, the structure in my head as I approach this is, we'll do verse 15 with a minor point and a major point. Verse 16, minor point, major point. Verse 17, minor point, major point. That's the structure I have in my head. So if you want to put a little piece of paper and say, 15, minor, major. 16, minor, major. 17, minor, major. I hope I can fill in the blanks before we're done. So here's the verse. Let's read it first. But... Even though I just said he's a type, Adam is a type and a pattern of Christ, but the free gift, now that refers, according to verse 17, to the free gift of righteousness. You can drop your eyes down and pick up where the gift is defined for us in verse 17. So I'm going to say free gift of righteousness just so you don't lose track of what that is. The free gift of righteousness is not like the transgression, that's Adam's sin, for... If by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to many. So first the minor point. Now when I say minor and major, 
It's very misleading because the minor points are huge points. They're huge theologically, spiritually. But they're not the main point that Paul is making in the verse. They're just, he loves to drop explosive little crumbs everywhere. His minor points are more major than my major life. Let's do the minor point first. It's found in the comparison of the one and the many. Do you see those words, one and many? If by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many, that's all of us who were in Adam, who came from Adam, the many died. Now we're going to see it again. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many, the many who are in him. Now, that's no accident that he talks in terms of one, many, one, many. What's the point? The point is this. There's one man who ever lived, the God-man, Jesus Christ, through whom grace has come to the world for salvation. Not two men, not three men, not a hundred men, not 700 million Hindu gods. There is one solitary human and divine man through whom all grace flows into the world of sinners. That's all there is. One, only one. There was one man at the beginning from whom all destruction and sin came. There is one man as the new age begins to dawn through whom grace flows into the world creating a new humanity. And everybody that is saved is saved through the one man, Jesus Christ. I think that's the point here of one many, one many. And Adam simply serves as a foil, as a backdrop to exalt Jesus Christ. So I invite you already in the sermon to worship Christ while I'm talking. Worship Christ while I'm talking. I want to lift him up and show him to be the surpassing one. Not just the plus ten and Adam's the minus ten. And so now we have zero in the middle and everybody's back where we started in the Garden of Eden. I want you to worship Jesus as off the charts here. He is one who is doing something that nobody else but he could do. That's the minor point. Here's the major point of the verse. Let's get at it by asking what is the difference between Christ and Adam or Christ's work and Adam's work that is held up for us here. The uh, verse begins, but the free gift, that's Christ's righteousness, is not like the transgression. Now, what's being negated here? What's being denied? I think the answer will be given if we read the rest of the verse. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more, that's going to be the crucial phrase for me, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Now, here's the way I would paraphrase the first part of verse 15 in view of the second part. I would go like this. We should not merely say as transgression so also gift. 
Rather, we ought to say, as transgression, much more gift. That's what the point of the verse is. That's the major point of the verse. If you say, what's the big idea in this verse that Paul's trying to get across? It's found in that much more. And what he's saying is, don't even contrast Christ with Adam as a minus 10 and a plus 10. Don't say, as one transgression, so also one gift. Say, as one transgression, much more one gift. And the much more is way out there beyond where my hands could reach. If I could do Adam over here with this gesture, and Christ over here with this gesture, my arm would just go right through the wall over there. And that would be memorable. (laughs) What is the much more all about? What, much more, what, what are you getting at, Paul? Look up at verse 10 to see how he used this phrase, much more. This little teeny two-word phrase. Verse 10, chapter 5 of Romans. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? Now, much more there is a much more of certainty, not quantity. It's a much more of certainty. If he reconciled us to himself while we were enemies, then all the more certainly will he save us now that we are reconciled. Now, I bring that down here to verse 15, and I think certainty is at least part of Paul's meaning When he says, let's paraphrase it with that word. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, much more certainly did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So you have an abounding, there's quantity, and then you have this much more certainly Will this be the case? And so here's my question as I'm groping toward, what's the point here, Paul? How are you exalting Jesus here? What what point do you want to make about Christ here as the big point? And my answer to why it is much more certain that grace is going to abound over all the penalty that came from Adam is that God's ultimate purpose in the universe is not judgment, but salvation and the display of his grace in salvation. The ultimate aim of God in the universe is the display of the glory of his grace. And I could make that point from three texts, but I'll make it only from one. I could take you to to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, where it terminates, all of redemptive history terminates by saying, under the praise of the glory of His grace. Or I could take you to Romans 9, 22 and 23, where it says He endures with much long suffering vessels of wrath in order that He might display for the vessels of mercy the riches of His glory. And thus show you there that in God's way of thinking, it isn't here's judgment and here's grace. No, 
again, my gestures are going to fail me here because I don't have an arm long enough to get through the roof. It is judgment here and grace here. Judgment exists. Wrath exists. It will always exist. Hell is real and it will be inhabited forever. But that's not the main point of the universe. It exists as a necessary backdrop against which grace and mercy will shine all the brighter and all the more fully forever and ever. The main point of the universe is grace displayed. So I won't show it to you from Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. I will show it to you from Romans 8. Turn with me, maybe one page in your Bible. Romans 8, 20 and 21. What we're trying to do is get a handle on Paul's understanding of reality here. What's the world all about? What's sin all about? What's redemption all about? What's creation all about? What, where's it all going? What's the point of it all? And Paul has big insights into that. Here's one of them. Romans 8, 20, 21. For creation was subjected to futility. Now, that's the same thing we have going on in Romans 5, where death comes upon everybody because of Adam's sin. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation never asked to be sentenced to death. God sentences to death. You might say, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know that's God here? Let's read on. For the creation was subjected to futility... Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, how do we know who that is? You know who it is because of the next words. It was the person who could and did subject it in hope. The devil did not subject the creation to futility in hope. He had no hopeful designs for Adam and Eve. Death, he's a murderer from the beginning. All he cares about is dragging people with him to hell. But God ordained what Satan hates in his own designs. Hope and grace and salvation. And here's the description of the hope in verse 21. In hope... That creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what's the main point of verse 15? I have argued that the reason grace is going to much more abound over the judgment that came upon Adam's sin is because in God's mind, the structure of the universe has this main reason for being, that God aims to display the glory of his grace over the glory of his wrath and judgment. It is preeminent and superior. And then, to get real fine on this verse, he wants us to see that Grace is displayed through one man. It's not just grace kind of strewn out there with no root or no ground or no cause or no channel. It is through the one man, Christ Jesus, through whom all grace comes. So the point, here's the major point of verse 15. The universe exists 
to display the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Now, I should sit down and go home. Because that's the end of the Bible, that's the end of my life, that's the end of the sermon. That's what the whole thing is about. Everything exists to display grace through Jesus. Everything painful in the world exists for that end. Everything happy in the world exists for that end. And our little teeny minds are spending a lifetime groping around trying to figure out how all that works. But we know the end. We know the goal. We know what it's about. Let's go to verse 16. The gift of righteousness is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift of righteousness arose from many transgressions resulting in Justification. Oh, that's a complex sentence, isn't it? Wow. So let me get the minor point and the major point and try to show you. Dig in there. Here's the minor point. Oh, this is so major. Forgive me, God, for calling it minor. But it's not the main point. It's the sub-point. He says that the free gift, and we know from verse 17 that the free gift is the free gift of Christ's righteousness results in justification. Let's read that little phrase in verse 16. The free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Get this clear now. Just get these, this little phrase. Forget the rest. The gift of Christ's righteousness results in justification. Now think on this with me. Please don't lose me here. This is absolutely crucial because what it's saying is justification has a foundation. Something results in it. It doesn't hang in the air like a different status of relationship or just a different relationship with no foundation under it. Here's what's under it. The gift which we know from verse 17 is the gift of righteousness. Or as verse 18 says, one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Or as it says in verse 19, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. So here's the sub-point of verse 16. When you glory in God's verdict, not guilty, but accepted, loved, and righteous over your life, sinner though you be. When you glory in that and rejoice in that, remember, it's not hanging in the air. It's on a foundation. And the foundation is the righteousness of Jesus. This is glorious. See, I'm, what I want to do in my preaching, especially this morning, is try to build into your brain a structure of reality that will be able to stand against the devil when he comes to you and says, You? You not guilty? You accepted by a holy God? You righteous in God's presence? Get a mirror! Now, what are you going to do with that? You've got to have a, another structure of reality. Because I tell you, Satan's got some really good evidence in your life. To persuade you, no hope. 
No way will a holy, just God pronounce you not guilty. You've got to have a structure of reality that is so big, it can handle Satan's little distortion in a minute. And here it is. There's a foundation under that verdict. And it isn't you. It's Jesus. It's his obedience. It's his righteousness. So little teeny application. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're trying to get Talitha to learn the Gospels. We're reading through Luke now. We say, what Gospel are we reading from? Luke. What are the other three? Mm, mm, two mm's. Mm, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now I've said them every one. And the reason I want her to read the Gospels, that build her into her four-year-old life day after day, is because when I read the Gospels, when she reads the Gospels, what I want her to see as Jesus is healing lepers and putting children in his lap and pronouncing forgiveness on harlots and teaching a, a way of radical righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing there is not just giving you an example for how to live, yes, yes, but... He's laying a foundation for a verdict of not guilty over your life. So when you read the Gospels, love your foundation. Exult in your foundation. Don't just load yourself down with a a hundred commands and they are hard. Believe me, love your enemy. Return good for evil. Bless those who persecute you. That's hard. But see in that one who did it so perfectly. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you see that, see, that's my foundation. There it is. And then on that foundation, rest in your justification. And then, you know what? You will be able to forgive your enemies. But you turn it around, you will die. You will die. Did I say that was the minor point? I did. And and it is. What's the major point of verse 16? The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For, on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. Now, here comes the major point. This is the, this is the main thing he's about in this verse. Judgment, that is death for all of us, arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift of righteousness that we've been talking about arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, how is Christ exalted in his grace here above Adam? And here's the answer. Condemnation is a natural, fitting response to transgression. Nobody says, what would you do that for? If you pronounce somebody guilty who sinned. But justification is not a natural or a fitting response to transgression. Let alone Many transgressions. And the text says that's exactly what it's a response to. There are two massive obstacles that God had to overcome in order to justify sinners like us. 
One, the moral fitness between transgression and condemnation. That's right. It's an abomination to justify the wicked, Proverbs 17 says. Secondly, he had to overcome the obstacle that not only is there one sin to fix and overcome to justify a sinner, there are many. I mean, count them in your own life, multiply it by millions upon millions of people, and you see what God's up against here with regard to a just dealing with human beings in the salvation of sinners. And here's the main point of the verse. One transgression naturally yielded a condemnation. And stand and wonder, many millions upon millions upon millions of spittings in the face of God resulted in justification. Because there's a foundation, Jesus. Don't. Spurn this, Jesus. It is a glorious salvation he has wrought for us. So that in spite of all our sins, we may be justified, counted just, declared innocent, received as righteous in him. That's the main point. Last verse, very quickly. Verse 17. For if by... The transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Minor, major. Here's the minor point. You see it in the phrase, receive the abundance of grace. Don't miss this. This is crucial. Big, crucial for making sense of the whole paragraph. Those who receive the abundance of grace. Now, here's my take on that phrase. I think Paul is saying some receive it, some don't. In drawing our attention to the fact that grace is received... I think he's drawing our attention to the fact that not everybody receives it. Now, the reason this is so crucial is because you have the word all used in several verses in this paragraph that sound on the face of it like everybody fell in Adam, everybody's going to get saved in Jesus. The question is, who's the everybody that gets saved in Jesus? If I said we're all here, you wouldn't think six billion people on the planet were here. You'd ask, well, he has a certain kind of all in mind, namely the people that usually attend Bethlehem and the visitors that are here on the weekend. That's the all he's talking about. So the question is, who's the all in verse 19? Who's the all? Who's the many in verse 15 when it says many died in Adam and many will be justified in Christ? The many are those who receive it. So, the all is all in Adam, and the all is all who are receiving, all who are in Christ. Here's one humanity, natural. Here's another humanity, spiritual. He is the second Adam, the man from heaven, who is gathering a new humanity to himself, and everybody in him has utterly remedied 
all that we suffered in our first human father, Adam. That's the minor point. Now the last brief major point, verse 17. If death reigned, I'm going to show you what he did not say about the reign of death and the reign of life. And then draw out the point from what he did not say. If death reigned through one, much more will life reign through Christ. That's not what he said. If you were following in your Bible, you would see I I distorted the verse. I changed it, right? Let me read it again. If death reigned through one, that's Adam, much more will life reign through the one Christ. Now that works and it's true. It's just not what he said. And when I see Paul break a parallel that looks so natural to me, why didn't you say it that that way, Paul? I would have said it that way. I really like symmetry. Say it that way. And Paul says, because I have another point to make. What's the point? When you catch him doing this, you can catch his point. So what did he say? Let's read it. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. He's not saying life will reign. He's saying you will reign. In other words, the contrast between Adam and Christ is not that we trade rulers. Once death ruled us, now life rules us. That's true. It's just not what he's saying. He's going beyond. Here's this much more. Here's grace abounding to our utter speechless amazement this morning. He says, once you had a ruler, his name was death. Now you are a ruler. And the power in which you rule is life. Well, actually, I didn't quite say it right. Because I used the present tense, didn't I? And it's future in the verse. And that's good. Because I don't feel like a king right now. Because if I were king, I'd change a lot of things. I'm not a king now. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, you read about how the Corinthians thought they had already become kings. They were sleeping around and boasting in it way above any law. They were proud. They were arrogant. They thought they'd arrived. And Paul said, would that I were a king with you. But I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I suffer all day long. I die every day. That's my kingship now. But if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. So you're going to be a king. Right now you're a princess and a prince. In fact, I close with this. Well, maybe I'll sum up after I say this, but I listened to the memorial service on my computer yesterday. You can, you can do this if you want, of James Montgomery Boyce, who died two weeks ago about. His memorial service was Friday a week ago. And I just poked the right button and sat there at my computer listening. And R.C. Sproul, one of his closest friends to this full 10th Presbyterian church, came to the end of his eulogy, which was a very stirring and moving eulogy, said something like his last words were, 
heaven has received a prince. Now, he said that because he regarded James Boyce as one in a million, which he was. But I say it over every Christian in this room. Heaven's going to receive princes and princesses. And they will graduate to being kings. And it's not just this text that teaches it. Revelation 3.21, those who conquer will sit with me on my throne as I sit with my father on his throne. Lap in lap in lap. This is beyond all of our imagination. But you will rule and judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6 says. You will govern cities, Jesus says in Matthew 25. I cannot comprehend this, but I simply ask you, little Christian, little Christian. I thought of calling you little Christians last night because I felt like such a little Christian when I was working on this. And Jesus says, little flock, don't be afraid. Little Christian, you can't get your head up into this cloud yet. But oh, try. Try to get your self-identity that you're all concerned about here up into the cloud. That one day I will reign with Jesus. And life will be my scepter. And I will not only have triumphed over my king death... So that I now have a king life. I will be king with life somehow under God in Christ. And let that shape. I closed last week with marriage. <laughs> let it shape everything. Let it shape everything. It will change everything. In fact, while I'm on marriage. <sighs> it just came into my head. I'm going to say it and then I'll stop. Do you remember in First Peter 3. It says to husbands, live together with your wife as a fellow heir of grace. In other words, the mindset of a husband should be, this is no ordinary human being. This woman is a, a co-inheritor of eternal glory, eternal grace, Queen and king on the throne of God, I cannot belittle her. I cannot treat her like dirt. I cannot use certain language for her. I cannot touch her in certain ways or hit her. I cannot let my marriage be anything other than a reverent living together with an heir of glory. That'll change things. And I'm not, I have relatives in the room who know I have a wife sitting way back there. I know I'm not there yet, but I'll want to be there real bad. Okay. Sum it up in one minute and we're done. Major point of verse 15. God's ultimate aim is to display the preeminence of his glory over judgment. Main point of verse 16, God's grace triumphs not just over one transgression, it triumphs over many transgression and is an inexpressibly great response to many transgressions because justification is not something you'd expect to follow transgressions. Major point of number seven, verse 17, the triumph of God's grace does not simply replace death 
with the reign of life. It replaces the reign of death with your becoming one who reigns in life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please grant faith. And I think a a deep, deep component of faith is simply a spiritual apprehension of the glory of what I'm saying. Would you open the eyes of your people, the sheep in this room, and give them to the Son who says, I will never, ever turn away from whom the Father gives me. You're dismissed. Go with God.